Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. It's a wonderful privilege to be here with you this morning and to be able to share with you from God's Word written. It's always a privilege to be here, and I know this is a very special time in your life as a congregation. So, to be able to give support to Travis and to Daniel and to the elders and the congregation that you are, what a privilege. I want you to know that when we stand up here to speak, it's always an overwhelming privilege. Have you ever wondered what a pastor's thinking when he gets up from his chair and walks to the podium? That seems a long walk, and usually the head is down a little bit. Whatever is he thinking about? So I have taken it upon myself to conduct a rather informal survey amongst my friends. Buddy, what are you thinking of when you walk up to the pulpit in order to begin your sermon? And so far, I haven't asked Travis yet or Daniel, but so far the voices are all giving the same answer, and that is... I wish I spent more time in the study. I wish I spent more time in the study. I wish I spent more time. Well, you get the idea. And the the reason for that is it's such an awesome privilege to be able to speak to anyone at any time. That's an awesome privilege. To be able to speak to God's word written and to take on the task of hoping to expound it so that it might be better understood, that's a wonderful task yet again. And most importantly of all, to be able to speak with anyone or any group of people and say, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has lived amongst us and become one of us, and he is our salvation and our very life. That's a privilege as well. So you'd think that one would be overwhelmed so that you would be unable to speak. So why then do pastors actually speak? And the answer is because we've been reading this text, and there's something so exciting that we need to share in it together. So we will. And that excitement is strong enough to overcome the apprehension which one might otherwise experience and perhaps even be silenced by it. The approach to preaching, I believe, is very important. The longer I stay in ministry, which is five decades plus now, Um, The more I stay in ministry, the more I realize how important preaching is. And often Patty and I come and we sit with the family there and Travis is preaching or Daniel's preaching or somebody else from amongst you. And it's always a privilege to hear God's word expounded and spoken and explained. It's always a privilege to sit amongst you as we say, you know, that's right. I never thought of that before. That's very helpful. And so it's an experience that a congregation shares together. It's an experience whereby the dynamic of God the Holy Spirit moves amongst his people in the most effective way possible. God's word being spoken, being expounded. Now I have to tell you that living up island, I talk to a number of people and I try to explain this church to them. You'd like this church, I say. When you go to that church, there's no, uh, on occasion, the, the music is all a cappella, and the whole congregation sings the, part, the music in parts. No, they don't. <laughs> yes, they do. It's a real church, and you, they sing, and there's no music, 
and they can sing the whole song, and the whole congregation sings it in parts. Where is this church? How do I get there? And so we explain it to them, and very often they are intrigued to come for that reason alone. Now the exposition of the word is even more important, but nevertheless that reason alone is also helpful. One of the things that I've come to appreciate in preaching is, and I want to explain this because I'm going to be quoting somewhat someone rather extensively this morning. We are looking at God's word here and now, doing the best to expound it, and it's wonderful that God by his Holy Spirit gives us to understand what he wants to share with us. But how do we know it's accurate? How do we know it's true? How do we know that this moment here amongst us all is as God would want it to be. One of the ways that we do this is by picking up on voices from our Christian past, the church fathers, perhaps the voices of the Reformation, perhaps the scholars who are speaking and giving leadership now in our world. And if we register with him, with them, then it helps to ground us so that we can appreciate that what we're saying is as accurate as we possibly can understand it to be. So therefore, the, I think the voice that I'm quoting this morning is a scholar who lived, I think, in 1816 to 1900 by the voice of J.C. Ryle. He was Anglican, but he was good. <laughs> and, uh, and he was a brilliant scholar and very powerful in his own day. And J.C. Ryle was a voice for my grandfather as he went into ministry. Did you catch the line here? That would be Daniel's great-grandfather as he went into ministry. And just as when I went into ministry, the voices of John Stott and J.I. Packer and others were the one that I listened to to get things accurately in place, so my grandfather, one of the voices that he listened to was J.C. Ryle. Very popular, very powerful in his own day until the end. And the church turned on him, his own church. We don't want your biblical ideas anymore. We have liberal ideas, and we're going with them. So he ended his ministry in a time of loneliness and separation from the body um, somewhat. But the good news is that his son went into the ministry, <laughs> and his son was a very strong and dynamic voice for the gospel as well. So J.C. Ryle, I'm going to begin and end with him, uh, if I may, in this sermon this morning. The story is told, that's how I always begin humorous stories, the story is told of a sea captain who was well known amongst his crew and much loved by them, and it was in the olden day, days where the ships had the tall sails and the masts, and he would come out every morning, gather his crew around them, and he would share with them in such a way that they were encouraged by what he said. He would give the directions, and as he did this, he had a little ceremony. And the ceremony was, he brought out a gray box and set it in front of him. He took a key from around his neck and opened it. He opened the box and looked into it, closed the box, and then went on with his exhortation, which was always a very good one. When it came time, finally, for him to retire, he did so, and the first mate became captain, and you know what he wanted to do. He wanted to find out what's in that box. 
So the first morning the gray box was placed in front of him, he got the key and he opened it with great expectation. And as he lifted the lid, inside he found only a piece of paper with six words on it. Left is port, right (laughs) is starboard. (laughs) He wanted to be very sure that he had his bearings, that he was grounded, that he was secure. And, um, and as he did so, then he could wax eloquent with the rest of what he had to say and know that everybody was on course. So, in a sense, that's what we want to do. When we're hit with blunt trauma, when we're hit with times of prosperity and easiness, when we are going through phases of life as a congregation, it's so easy to pull away from the center of the gospel. It's so easy to drift into another line of thinking which sounds very plausible by the teaching of the day. So how do we stay true to our focus? How do we focus in such a way that our personal life with the risen Lord Jesus Christ is online? How do we stay true to the scriptures so that we are always being informed by them? And how do we stay with our church in its historic documents so that we stay on course as a church? Those are questions we want to ask ourselves from time to time and just do a check to make sure that all is well. Jesus in this passage is talking to his disciples, his loved ones. He's talking to them and teaching to them in a way that's more in-depth than any conversation they would ever have had before. They have seen him do his miracles. They have heard him teach. They have seen the crowds gather around them. They have seen the resistance build up. And here's Jesus talking with them one-on-one, and the conversation becomes more intense and more intense and more intense. And as he shares with them, then they ask him questions. In this passage that we're looking at, Peter asks questions, Thomas asks questions, Philip has a question to ask, and the conversation goes back and forth. And Jesus is very aware that they're picking up on the fact that something's going to happen. It's going to change things, and it will be an uncomfortable change for them. And so he picks up on the conditions of their hearts, and he says in the text, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, for it were not so, I would have told you. This apprehension that the disciples were manifesting at this time, they were just a little bit off stride, if you like. They were nervous. They had these questions, and their hearts were troubled, and Jesus picked up on it. And two things are happening. One, he's talking to them there and then so that they come online. Two, he's speaking in such a way that these words will speak to God's people down throughout the centuries, and here we are. Our hearts are troubled. It's a common condition, even for Christians. And sometimes we think, well, perhaps I shouldn't have a troubled heart. I'm a believer after all. But in reality, it comes to us. J.C. Ryle. We have, first in this passage, a precious remedy against an old disease. That disease is trouble of heart. That remedy is faith. Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank or class or condition 
is exempt from it. No bars, no bolts or locks can keep it out. Partly from inward causes and partly from outward, partly from the body and partly from the mind, partly from what we love and partly from what we fear, the journey we have in life is full of trouble. Even the best Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. I love that line. Even the best of Christians have many bitter cups to drink between grace and glory. Even the holiest saints find the world a veil of tears. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only sure medicine for a troubled heart. He follows this idea with a strong presentation of a very simple and a strong idea. And the presentation that he's making to them, he's saying, in my father's house are many mansions, and there are many rooms there. So in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. It's this point in the sermon that I wish I'd included four more quotations by J.C. Ryle, because he had a good one for that, too. But for the cause of brevity, um, I've only included some of them. The idea is that our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ and that he will come for us. And he makes that promise to the disciples, I will come for you. And so our eschatology is many-faceted, but part of our eschatology is that in our personal experience, at the end, what we see and understand and comprehend is that wonderful reality of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to take us home. I'm going home. How often do we hear people say that? And where is my home? Do I live here or there? Is my home where I grew up? Is my home where the place that I've lived the longest? And very often as people get towards the end of their lives, we hear them say, maybe just before the end, I'm going home. And we shake our heads and say, oh, no, you're not. You're too old and you can't leave the hospital. There's no possible I'm going home. And they are. And so that reality is there for us. So to be welcomed into someone's home It's a wonderful and exciting experience, isn't it? Doesn't matter if they live in a big house or if they have an apartment. Doesn't matter even if they just live in one room, perhaps in a senior's complex. To be invited into someone's home is the highest privilege, and we always look forward to it. Little apprehension, perhaps. What will I do? Where will I sit? You know, what can I say when I get there? But as we walk into someone's home, we very often have the experience of them saying, come on in, welcome, can I take your coat? Can I, you know, um, and then they usher us into the room and they say, have a seat. And a good hostess indicates the seat, by the way, and doesn't say, just sit wherever you want. That causes people to be nervous. Wherever I want, okay, what seat's their favorite? Um, where does the dog sit? And, um, and how will I find the right chair? So to be directed to a chair is a very helpful thing. Because we watch Downton Abbey. We remember how it works. You get to the table and the, the, the wife stands to everybody. You, know, you sit here and you sit there and you sit there. And everybody knows where their place is. And they're invited to that place 
we sit down and take it. Jesus is saying, in my Father's house are many rooms. And so there's a place for us. And so that imagery, together with other uh, biblical imagery, I think helps us to understand what it is that we will be experiencing. Augustine comments on this. The multitude of mansions will suit the multitude of inequalities among the occupants, but all of them nonetheless will live eternally and will be endlessly blessed. Now Jesus says to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christians in some places have understood this to mean that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life sort of expand or develop that one idea. In other expressions of Christianity, we have understood that he's talking about three avenues, three ranges of understanding, the way, the truth, and the life. And it is in that sense that I am taking it this morning. I think they both are quite correct, but for our purposes this morning, I'm not using, I am using capitals, and I'm using the phrasing that Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That sounds like three wonderful theological concepts that we can project up into the heavens, through the blue skies, through the stars, and as far as they will go into the heavens. Those ideas we can project and develop, and so we would understand clearly and concisely what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Except it doesn't work that way. (laughs) And we can't do it, in fact. We have not the human capacity to project in such a way that we can ever define or bring to an understanding of who God is, but always it's a matter of God's revelation of himself to us. And so as this revelation comes to us, we are given to understand the things of God. Jesus is addressing three questions at this particular time, and these questions are common to our human experiences. Question number one, where do we go from here? That's what the disciples would be asking themselves. That's what we ask ourselves. Question number two, how do we know what to believe? And question number three, How do we know that we will live forever? So these three questions Jesus is addressing as he speaks to them, and he speaks in this very simple but profound sentence. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. Where do we go from here? How shall we live? What do we do? How do we order our lives? Helpfully, in the canon of Holy Scripture, we have been given many directions, most helpfully, perhaps, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, so that we would understand a lifestyle, a way of living that God would have his people follow in order that we would accurately be his people. We do this by making theological statements in our churches and books that are written, We do this by giving ethical definitions as to what Christians do and what Christians don't do in this world in which we live. And as we do this, we come to the realization that more and more we come to that place where Jesus as a person is the way, 
and we follow him. During the course of this week, um, we've had the privilege of babysitting Daniel's dog, Boomer, Wheaton Terrier, and everybody knows that when you have a terrier, everything's fun. (laughs) And they enjoy doing everything, and they always want to be with you. All the time, they want to be with you. Go from this room to the next, the dog's there. Go from that to another room, Boomer's there. Sit down to watch TV and change your feet. And he says, well, now, why did you move that foot to that side and the other foot to the other side? Because a Wheaton Terrier always wants to be with you. We always want to be with Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, yes, we have commandments to follow. But more importantly, we have been given a personal relationship with him And we are allowed to follow that personal relationship into a much more accurate way of living. I am the truth. When I was writing the sermon, I thought, now, whatever I do, I'm not going to talk about what happens south of the border. The text says, I am the truth. I don't care what it takes. I'm not going to talk about what happens south of the border. And you know what happens. It has so... um, invaded our lives in our understanding that we have to consider it in the point of view of truth. And so um, um, the whole idea of the truth being reality and the truth being accurately spoken to, the whole idea of lies being out there, we have to sort this out as a Christian people. And as we do so, we find that a formula is taking place and it's actually being adjusted amongst us. The formula used to be, if you weren't a Christian, that what's true for me might not be true for you. It's an absurd formula, actually, if you stop to think about it. It makes no sense whatsoever. And the good news, I think, is that that's being dropped. What we hear now being said is, yes, I have a truth to speak, but then somebody else will return by saying, I have a greater truth. So they still understand it to be relative, but it's actually a little bit closer to a biblical concept of truth. And so truth, as it's given to us, isn't found just in theological statements, but rather in this case, yet again, we find it in a personal relationship with a person. Who knew? Who ever thought of that? The truth is found in a personal relationship with a person. It's found as it's defined in the book of, of Holy Scripture. And, um, and this relationship with the Lord our God is a personal relationship. It's not just a doctrinal statement as important as they are. And then he says, I am the life. We are surrounded by a world in which there is death. And more and more we find that in ethical issues, that question comes up, is it life or is it death? And as the world takes one course of action, we as a Christian people are called to say it's life. In every situation, it's life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And then we find that Jesus himself is the life. He who came to us and died on the cross and was in the grave for three days, who went through resurrection and came back to us, he is the one who brings life. And so that, for us, is our focus. I'd like to quote a guy who I can't 
pronounce, and I never knew he was there before, but he said something that I just had to bring to share with you this morning. He's one of the church fathers, um, but he says the following. He himself has said, I am the life. What the soul is to the body is what Christ is to the soul. Without the soul, the body does not live. The soul does not live without Christ. There he is, our life. There he is, the one who gives to those of us who believe eternal life so that we might always know him and have him and follow him. The life, yet again, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He then goes on to make in conversation with Philip the equation between himself and the Father, that if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And what he's saying is that if we know God, then we know God in Jesus Christ. If we know God in Jesus Christ, then we know God the Father. We cannot do it one without the other. We cannot say, I know God, but I do not know Jesus, for that would be a separation between the two. Neither can we say, I know Jesus, but I'm not too sure about God, because that, again, would be a separation between the two. The two are connected inseparably. To know God the Father is to know God the Son. To know Jesus is to know who God the Father is in our lives. J.C. Ryle, this is the closing one. <laughs> this is, I want to take it carefully, if I may. Sayings like these are full of deep mystery. We have no eyes to see their meaning fully, no line to fathom it, no language to express it, no mind to take it in. We must be content to believe that we cannot explain what we, when we cannot explain and to admire and revere when we cannot interpret. Let it suffice us to know and hold that the Father is God and the Son is God, and yet that they are one in essence through two distinct persons, ineffably one and ineffably distinct. Ineffably is a great word. I had to look it up too. The Oxford Dictionary says it means more than is visible to us or more than that is understood at any one moment. So that's what he's saying there. Let it suffice us to know and hold that the Father is God and the Son is God and that they are one in essence through two distinct persons, ineffably one and yet ineffably distinct. These are high things and we cannot attain to a full comprehension of them. When I gave the definition for the passage to be read this morning, I should have included the next four words as Jesus goes on in further explanation. And those four words are, if you love me. And that's what it all has to do with, the love of a wonderful and powerful God towards us. I want to close with a prayer this morning, if I may. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, waiting for his execution. Dietrich Bonhoeffer trying to understand all that God has done for him in the context of a world which is quite difficult. And he prayed, O Lord God, great is the misery that has come upon me. My cares overwhelm me. I am at a loss. 
My God, comfort and help me. Give me strength to bear what you send, and do not let fear rule over me. As a loving father, take my care of my loved ones, my wife and my children. O merciful God, forgive all the sins I have committed against you and against my fellow men. I put my trust in your grace and commit my life wholly into your hands. Do with me as is best for you, for that will best be best for me too. Whether I live or die, I am with you, and you are with me. Lord, I wait for your salvation and for your kingdom. Amen. <clears throat> 